Good to be with you this morning. Let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord God, we turn to you this morning that you might teach us from your Word. As Jesus said, go and learn what this means. And we pray that we would learn what it means. That you desire mercy and not sacrifice. That you are the God of grace. You're the God of mercy that we've sung of already this morning. And you're the God that calls us and sees us. And I pray that as we realize we are seen by you and also called by you, that you would give us faith to respond. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing a series through the book of Matthew. If you're new to us, this is the first biography in the New Testament of Jesus' life, written by Matthew. And today we get to where Matthew includes himself in the story. This is where we meet the tax collector who then eventually wrote the biography of Jesus' life that we have recorded for us here, which is quite amazing. One of the things that might strike you is that Jesus says to Matthew, so firstly, Jesus sees Matthew, and then he says to him, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He just gets up and follows him. Yes, he does. Seems pretty quick doesn't it? In fact, to many of us, this can seem like he's just made a snap decision. But of course, if you end up writing the biography about Jesus' life, we know that the work that happened, even in an instant, must have been quite deep and life-transforming. Matthew had not had time to weigh things up, to see whether Jesus matched up with his life goals or not. Matthew decided that this was it, that he knew that this was the person he'd been looking for, the thing he'd been looking for his whole life. Matthew did not even have time to try before you buy, so to speak. Matthew believed. And so he got up and followed Jesus as he was called. You don't see it in this gospel, but in Luke's gospel, which records the same event, it tells us that Matthew left everything behind and followed Jesus. Left everything behind and followed Jesus. This is a big deal. This tells us straight off the bat that following Jesus is not just about putting up your hand and making a decision, though that may be part of it, but it is far more. Following Jesus is about giving up your whole life to go and follow Him. And then this is this interesting conversation that Jesus has with some Pharisees, which are these religious rulers and religious leaders. These are very moral and upright people. And Jesus tells them that they've got it all wrong. And that Jesus and God in particular is looking for people who actually recognize they need him. Not people who are righteous in their own standing, who are already living a good life or who are already moral and upstanding and righteous in their own sight. No. God is looking for people who know that they're sinners, like Matthew did. What this will do for us this morning will teach us about one thing that I'm going to open up a bit, and that's the grace of God. It is the grace of God with, with which Matthew sees, so Jesus sees Matthew. And it's the grace of God, that same grace with which Jesus calls Matthew, and it is us 
watching that we're going to learn about this grace of God, which Jesus says to go and learn what this means. So let's do that. Let's have a look at what it means to have Jesus see us. Well, Matthew's a tax collector. And in the first century, that means that you are right at the bottom of a very religious society. You're right at the bottom. Tax collectors like Matthew would have been sitting in their tax booth, probably on a major road uh, in and out of a city, and they'd be taking a toll, or like a customs officer of some sort that would take a portion uh, of the money that you were going to earn from doing trade along the way. That was Matthew's job. He was sitting in his tax booth doing that. But of course, uh, these uh, tax collectors would take a little bit more than they should have. These tax collectors worked for the Roman government and they made themselves very wealthy by doing so. So they were corrupt. And because they were working for the Romans and because everyone knew that they were corrupt, the Jews did not like them. They were despised. And to the Pharisees, who were the religious rulers, who were the spiritual elite of a very religious society, they saw people like tax collectors as the cockroaches that you can't really kill, but you really wish weren't there. These sorts of people, these tax collectors, were unworthy in the eyes of religious people who themselves thought them to be moral, upstanding, doing all the right things at the right times, doing all the right religious ceremonies, and then these poor tax collectors really should have no part in a religious society and are definitely not worthy of God's blessing. Now, this makes it all the more strange when Jesus looks at Matthew and calls him to follow him. Why would Jesus do this if tax collectors are really at the bottom of the religious society? These are the people who are taking others' money. You know, we joke about the tax man today, but of course we have lots of rules and systems and it's fairly transparent. Whereas back then they could just take a little bit extra and no one would need to know. Why would Jesus call someone like a tax collector? And when Jesus saw him, because Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus saw him, what did Jesus see when he was looking? Well, the first thing that Jesus saw in Matthew was a man that was lost. Now, in his own terms, Matthew was a very capable and wealthy man. He'd done well, even if it was by unscrupulous means. He was taking advantage of people by taking a little bit more tax than he should have and lining his pockets and becoming well off. But it is a dog-eat-dog world after all, so he was just making his best go of it. And yet, because of his choices and his profession, Matthew could never be accepted in the established religion. Matthew could continue in his tax booth for the rest of his life and become very, very rich. But Matthew would then be always poor and truly poor towards God. Towards God. You see, Matthew had sold his soul to the God of money and was far from the true God. Jesus sees Matthew, a man by his own choices who is living in opposition to God. Jesus sees a man who, despite the appearance of being wealthy and powerful and having everything that money can buy, that he's lost. Now you and I can be just like Matthew. 
We can be so focused like a racehorse with the blinders on, on the goal of being financially well off, of being wealthy, by sometimes even taking unscrupulous means to get there, whether we sacrifice our family and devote ourselves fully to our career, whether we uh, sacrifice good ethics to get ahead financially, whether we do, in fact, do a bit of dodgy paperwork with our taxes and try and make the most in a difficult and hard world. We can be so focused on this idea of making it that we can forget to realize that there is true emptiness in our heart. In the movie Star Wars, A New Hope, Han Solo is eyeing off the financial reward that he will get for rescuing the Princess Leia. Now, the princess realizes that there's much more to life than money, and she says to him, if money is all you want, then money is all you will get. She's saying that the life that he's been living before, lonely and just chasing after money, is what he will continue in for the rest of his life if that's all he wants. You see, Jesus sees through our ambitions. He knows us behind our appearances. He sees that we are truly lost without Him. That's the first thing that Jesus sees Matthew as lost. And secondly, Jesus sees Matthew as someone who is harassed and helpless. A little bit later in Matthew chapter 9, there's a summary statement about Jesus' ministry to people just like Matthew. And this is what it says in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you may not know this, but you're more like sheep than you might think so. I know you're not that woolly. Some of us are more woolly than others. But we are more like sheep than we'd like to admit. Along with everyone else in our culture, we are vulnerable to the environment around us and the bad actors of this world. We're always searching for something. We're searching for meaning in different places. Some of us find it through religion. But others, we're searching for it through different means. Some of us are looking for it in multiple places at the same time, whether by our career, going from one to another, hopefully finding something that really gives us value and purpose. Maybe it's through our possessions, that if I just get that house that I've always wanted that really overlooks the ocean, or that car that just gets to 100 kilometers a little bit faster than the one I had before. Or maybe it's through our relationships. Just searching for that perfect person who will meet my needs. The one that we're supposed to be looking for. We're always searching for a silver bullet that will make our lives what they're truly meant to be. Now I've, I've found this because I've made it one of my ambitions to read as many self-help books as I can recently. I, I picked them up secondhand and I just, I love reading these self-help books. They're absolutely fascinating. But underneath it all, they actually follow the, pretty much the exact same pattern in all of them. That is from so when they started to come out with Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People to some of the more modern ones like 12 Rules for Living by Jordan Peterson. They all follow this same pattern. Basically, the author had a crisis they found a pattern that is both common uh, to people in the natural world and obvious to those who look for it. 
but actually rarely followed, except by some exceptional people amongst us. And then they develop principles, that if you follow these principles that got this person through a crisis from these things that are common, commonly known but rarely discovered, that you too can be a successful person. Almost every self-help book will follow that pattern. And I've read lots of them, and I keep seeing it there. But there is a problem with these books, and that is that the same problems that they're underlying happen in every generation. We keep trying to solve the human condition, but we can't. Our optimization or enlightenment, self-help gurus and coaches keep telling us to do the same things and we can't fix ourselves. So where's the problem? It's with us. We keep looking for the silver bullet, trying to fix ourselves by something external that we can, if only we can get this thing to fix ourselves, then we'll be truly right. Except we just keep on searching we just keep on looking and often we're just encouraged to search harder and with more intensity furthermore self-help help books don't help us avoid the bad circumstances of the world or not to be enslaved by the love of money or to have truly loving and committed relationships one of the things that keeps happening is that these celebrated authors keep having marriage breakdowns drug addictions and they come out with some devastating life situation that affects them just like everyone else and they seem to fail to live up to even the principles that they've set forward that we need to follow in order to have a successful happy life. What does this tell us? It doesn't work, that's right. It doesn't work. Now of course there's many good tips and bits of advice that we can get from these self-help gurus but even the gurus themselves are harassed and helpless in a world that they cannot fix so matthew was in this same world where his personal choices about his profession made him lost but his culture the society in which he lived and the circumstances around him made him harassed and helpless wealth was his goal in a society that encouraged it to the exclusion of all others. If you get ahead, if you get wealthy, then you'll be fine. What Matthew needed was a good shepherd to free him from his helpless situation. That he, and like many of us, we are actually unaware that we are in this. We keep looking for the silver bullet, the one thing that will fix everything. And we look in all the wrong places. So secondly, Jesus saw someone that was harassed and helpless. And thirdly, Jesus saw Matthew as someone that he loved. Now this is perhaps the most subtle part of the text. And if we look too quickly, we'll miss it altogether. Jesus seeing Matthew also meant that Jesus loved him. Now to explain this further, I want to go back to actually the beginning of the Bible. So Matthew is at the beginning of the New Testament. I want to go back to the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis in chapter 16. In Genesis 16, we're introduced to a woman called Hagar. Hagar is Abraham's concubine, and she is a woman who is left without many options. After Abraham is convinced by his wife Sarah to have a surrogate child through Hagar, 
Did you hear that correctly? After Abraham was convinced by his wife Sarah to have a surrogate child through Hagar, yes, the Old Testament is full of very confusing and better drama than the bold and the beautiful. You can imagine how that goes, right? The relationship between uh, Abraham's wife Sarah and Hagar deteriorates. She does fall pregnant and she does have a baby. But then Sarah gets upset with Hagar and ostracizes her. And so Hagar flees into the desert without the protection of the family unit, away from Abraham and alone with her boy Ishmael. Hagar is alone, her son is fatherless, and she is without security. And yet in the desert, the text tells us that God saw her, that God met her in her wilderness, in her isolation, and in her suffering. That he encouraged her and that he cared for her. After this event, when God meets with her, Hagar speaks of this in verse 13 of chapter 16 in Genesis. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of sin. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The God who saw her, looked after her, and called her. He loved her and restored her purely out of his loving grace. Hagar didn't make herself a strong and confident woman and turn her life around first, as the self-help books would have told her to do. No. God met her in the middle of her mess, and he loved her. He poured his grace upon Hagar freely as she responded to his call. This tells us that God has not missed our situation or our suffering. No matter what you have been through or what you're going through at the moment, God has not missed it. This is the God who sees you. The same God who saw Hagar, an outcast and isolated woman, is the same God who saw Matthew, an outcast, very wealthy and lost man. Jesus sees people like Hagar and like Matthew in a world that is truly dog-eat-dog. It is a world that will overcome you, that will take advantage of you, and that will encourage you to pursue things that will ultimately destroy you. In this world, when you make your bed, you get to lie in it. Where you choose to pursue money, greed will find you. When you pursue sexual fulfillment, immorality will find you. Where you seek freedom, you will get slavery. Where you seek the good life, you'll get stress and anxiety. Jesus sees us in a world without his grace. And he longs to call us to find him because he loves us. The God who sees you loves you. An author once said that one of our greatest fears is that we would be fully known. One of our greatest fears is that we will be fully known by the people around us. Because if they truly knew who I am, what I've done, the things that I've thought, the words that I've said, 
what my ambitions really are, if they truly knew me, then no one could really love me. Because underneath it all, I'm really much worse than you think I am. This author said that is one of the greatest fears that people have. That if anyone sees me with my sin and my faults and my failures, they can never truly love me. And that is one of the reasons that when someone asks, how are you going? You say, good. Even when you're not good. Because we don't really want them to know what's going on the inside. But Jesus reveals himself to be the God of sin. He reveals himself to be the God who sees us truly as we are, with all the sins, with all the failures, with all the faults, with all the self-seeking. He knows what you did. He knows what your thoughts are. He knows what your ambitions are for good or bad. You are fully known to him. And yet he is also the God of love. And so these two things are put side by side and together. That Jesus is the God who fully sees you, who fully knows you, and yet truly, fully loves you. We know that because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, stepped out of heaven, came to earth, seeing the state of humanity, not just in our generality, that is, that we're a species uh, who has been become self-destructive and selfish and self-reliant and our ambitions conflict with one another and are always at war with each other. No, because he saw us too as individuals, as people who are lost, people, individuals like Matthew, whom he saw in a world harassed and helpless like Jesus saw the crowds that this God sees us and he stepped into this world because he loves us, but he didn't want to leave us in it. It's not good enough to know that God just sees you and that he loves you from a distance because that doesn't make sense to us who really know that someone only loves us if they're willing to do something about it. And we see the God in Jesus who is willing to do something about it, to join us in a world that's harassed and help us in order to save us out of it in order to change us. Jesus would take this path of teaching, of changing people's lives, this path that would lead him to a cross where he would lose his own life in order to save ours. Jesus' self-sacrificial love, knowing the sins of the world, knowing the heart of man, was poured out so that we might know that the one who sees us also truly loves us. That's the story of the Bible. That the God who sees every detail in your life, everything that's ever happened, every part of your inner being sees you just as you are, unlike anyone else in your life, this God that sees you, he truly loves you. And Jesus reveals himself in this text to be the God who sees me. And so because he is willing to both see you and to love you and to demonstrate what that means, we know that these two things can exist together. That the great, one of the greatest fears that people have that I'll be fully known 
that no one could love me is abolished because I can be fully known and fully loved because there is a God who sees me and a God who loves me. There's a song about this by a woman called Torin Wells and she explains it well. She says, It's so unusual, it's frightening. You see right through the mess inside me and you call me out to pull me in. You tell me I can start again and I don't need to keep on hiding. I'm fully known and loved by you. You won't let go no matter what I do. And it's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace to be fully known and loved by you. I'm fully known and loved by you. This is the God who sees you. Second thing I want to tell you this morning is that this God who sees you also calls you to his grace. Now the twist in this story is almost so quick that if you blink, you'll miss it. So we're going to slow right down so that you can see it with me this morning. We've already seen that Jesus truly sees Matthew, lost, harassed and helpless and yet truly and deeply loved. And yet at this point, you might expect that Matthew would need to pass some sort of test if he was going to follow Jesus. You know, it's following Jesus is hard. You know, Jesus has already sort of said to some people that, you know, it's going to be homeless. I'm going to be homeless. You better be willing to get up, give up everything to follow me. Jesus has already been with his disciples through a storm and they were scared out of their brains. Do you think Jesus is going to give Matthew a test and that he has to fill it out? And if he gets it right, then he can make the cut to be a follower of Jesus. But there's no test. Jesus calls and Matthew responds. It's like the penny dropped all of a sudden. Matthew had his eureka moment during the gold rush in Victoria in the 19th century. People would shout out this word. They shout out eureka when they found gold. They were searching all over for it. But if they found gold, they'd shout out Eureka and they'd give up everything else and dig because they finally found the thing they were looking for. They'd pursue it fully because they knew that they'd found something of true value. And so Matthew had his Eureka moment and he gave his whole life away to follow Jesus. So what did Matthew discover when Jesus called him? There's a word that summarizes this, and this word is grace. And I'm going to unpack that for you. Jesus called Matthew to know God, to be freed from a life, a lost life that he was leading, to be freed from the power of the harassed and helpless life that he'd been experiencing. Jesus called Matthew to turn to the one he'd been truly looking for, even though he didn't know it. You know that song by you 2 I still haven't found what I'm looking for? That really sums up the pursuit of the modern life. We're always looking for the next thing. And yet Matthew found it. And so what did he do? It happened in the blink of an eye in a split second. He rose and he followed him. He responded to the call. Matthew had discovered something better than gold. The grace of God. The grace of God, which does come at great cost, and yet Matthew is totally set free by it. 
And we find out what this means more clearly as Jesus uh, then goes over to Matthew's house and has a big feast with them. And of course, all Matthew's friends there, which are these other tax collectors, I'm assuming he had a, had a bunch of friends from the office and you know, from the tax office, and they all came over. And of course, they're all just a little bit dodgy like Matthew. And the word just gives us a general term for everyone else that was there, sinners. Imagine you were there with Matthew and you, there's the tax collectors who are Matthew's workmates and then all their friends, which are the sinners. That's a good generalization for you, but you get the idea, right? These are people who didn't make it in a religious society. These are the people that were outsiders. They weren't part of the religious group. They were the ones who, well, they probably liked to be in it. They, they, they probably liked to be accepted by God, but they just knew that they weren't good enough. And so they were the sinners and they were the tax collectors and Jesus was having dinner with them. Now the religious leaders, of course, saw this and they thought, this ain't right. You know, their idea of religion is that you need to prove yourself to God that you may be accepted. That you need to make sacrifices. You need to live a moral life. You need to do religious things and only then may God accept you. And so the Pharisees assumed that if Jesus, who by all accounts is a great moral teacher at least, is spending time with these tax collectors and sinners, that he is endorsing their lifestyle, that he is accepting them as they are. But far from it, Jesus is teaching as he eats. The Pharisees and us, you and me, he's teaching us what this grace really means. We see this in verses 12 to 13, which I'll read out for you. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. You see, here grace is revealed quickly, so quickly that we might miss it if we don't look deeply. Jesus quotes here the first half of Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, and by doing so points to the character of God's grace. And so if we're going to really follow what Jesus says here and learn what this means, let's look into it. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What does he mean? Well, as we turn to the book of Hosea, we realize that God's people had been continuing with their religious practices, but they'd actually dropped the relationship with God. That is, they continued to sin against God, and yet they'd kept up their religious offerings. They'd kept up their religious practices, but... The rest of the time, they just do whatever they want. You know, they might go to church on Sunday, you know, shake hands or give you a COVID-safe elbow tap. You know, they get a coffee and, you know, sit down and listen to the Bible and might even pray. But then during the rest of the week, they're really just doing whatever they want. These people that Hosea was calling out were religious people who were really what they call Sunday Christians. People who their whole religion is caught up in a, in a moment, but really their relationship with God is non-existent. You know, it's funny, I've, I've got a neighbor who is a, um, a mason. 
and and he's quite high up in the, in the Masons, and he would tell, they have sermons too when the Masons get together. Would you would you know? And he said that uh, he was preaching at one of these times, and he said we need to be like uh, and we need to be those like those people who are Christians all the time, not just Sunday Christians. That's what the Masons were saying. We need to live out our Masonhood 24/7, not just when we meet together. Now, if the Masons can get it, surely we can get it. Surely the religious people that Hosea was calling out can get it. Christianity is not about doing good things to get God. It is about a good God who did a good thing to get you. The Bible is a love story about the God who went to every means to get you into heaven with Him and to begin that life of abundance now. It is not a story about how to be a good person. It is not a story about how to give a good life that God may bless you. It is a story about how we have rejected God, how we haven't loved Him as we ought to, as we haven't followed the Ten Commandments and loved the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. And yet He loved us anyway. He saw us in our condition. And He loved us so deeply that He wouldn't leave us in it but that he'd come to us, live amongst us and die to pay the penalty for the sin of rejection which we'd had against him for the whole of humanity. This is the God the Bible talks about. And this is the God that the people in Hosea's day had totally got wrong. They thought, if I just keep turning up week after week, making the same offering week after week, that God will accept me. And he's like, no, I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. I want you to know who I am, the God of grace. That word mercy is translated two ways. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated as mercy. In the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, it's translated as steadfast love. What is the steadfast love of God? That is a God who keeps his promises. That is a God who is faithful to an unfaithful people. That is a God of grace. You don't hear the word grace mentioned much in the Old Testament because the word grace summarizes these two things which we see as contradictory, but it brings them together in the life, ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It brings together the mercy and the justice of God into one. That is grace. Because the God of mercy who favors the unfavored who welcomes the sinner, is also the God of justice, who will certainly do what is right and just and punish sin. And we see those things come together in Jesus Christ. And that the God who sees us in our sin, yet loves us and is willing to do something about it, is the God who mercifully goes to the cross to die for the sinner. And he is the God who would take the full justice due for our sin upon himself so that he can be both just and the one who justifies, so that he can be the God who is merciful, just, and therefore gracious. This is the God that the Bible tells us about. When Jesus said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's not interested in your religious offerings. They're not going to get you anywhere. He wants you. And he died to have you. 
Now you might say to me, well, we don't do this kind of thing today. We don't, you know, make offerings. Don't have a, a goat or a lamb at home that I'm ready to make an offering each year for the sins that I've committed. I don't have you know, some pigeons set aside so that I can take them to the temple and spill their blood to make an offering for my sin as an act of faith, trusting that God will cover over my sin. We don't do that anymore. And if you do, chat to me afterwards. There's a problem there. We'll sort that out, just in case. But generally speaking, we don't really do that, do we? And yet how many people, how many people, even today, ask yourself the question, do I attend church? Do I say my prayers and read my Bible because I think that God will accept me if I do? How many of us are trying to make up for the bad things that we've done, the ways that we know we've offended God by doing a few good things just to cover over, over them? So we might think, oh, I'm a good Christian. Yeah. Even that term, good Christian, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a good Christian as opposed to a bad Christian? If God is the one who does the work for you, if Jesus is the one who saves you, then there is no good or bad Christian. There's Christian or there's not. There's saved or there's unsaved. There's those who have received mercy and those who haven't. There's those who have learned what Jesus meant. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And there's those that haven't understood it. What about the secular world? Do we do this kind of thing? Of course we do. We hedge our bets. We assume that if there is a God, He'll accept me because I'm a good person. Have you heard that before? Have you said that before? Well, if there's a God out, if there's a God out there, you know, I'm a good person. And then you list off the things that you've done well. You know, I've lived a good life. I've been good to my family. I've cared for my kids. I desire to have a family one day and to do good things at some point. You know, I've given some money to charity. So you start listing off the ways that you justify yourself. And what you're doing is you're building up a big list of self-righteous deeds that have nothing to do with God and saying, I can do this on my own. And God will let you have what you want. If you want to do it on your own, he'll give you a loan. But Jesus loves you more than that. And so he's willing to call you out a graceless life. He's calling, he wants to call you into something which the second half of Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 says that God desires the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so Jesus wants to make this clear to his hearers. He's not seeking more religious people, people who know how to be good, people who know how to live a moral life, Jesus is saying he won't accept them. Jesus is saying that unless you have the mindset of a tax collector and a sinner, you can't know God. He's reversing things. This is fundamentally different to the way we imagine religion to be. Jesus is saying unless you realize you're a sinner, you can't come in. He says it explicitly here, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The righteous think they're already in and they're really out. And sinners realize they're out and they realize that when Jesus calls them, they really need him. That's what Jesus is on about. Self-righteous, moral people or religious people don't see the need for Jesus. Jesus came for sinners and that's why it's called grace because you can't earn it. It's given to you. 
It comes with the call that Jesus made to Matthew and the, Jesus, and the call that Jesus makes to you and me, that is, follow me. Chuck Swindoll defines Jesus' grace like this, to show favour or kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. And so when Jesus called Matthew, it wasn't on the basis of Matthew being a good person. In fact, Jesus saw his sin and guilt, but Jesus still called him. Of course, this does beg the question that if Jesus truly is the God of justice, then what will Jesus do with Matthew's sin? If Jesus sees someone who's taken advantage of others and done the wrong thing and probably ignored God for much of his life, then what will Jesus do with his sin? Though he calls him, He must also deal with it. You see, Jesus came to die for the sinners that he calls. He came to take justice for sin in order to share his grace for sinners. By Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, he gave himself in the place of sinners so that sinners could be set free. So that people who realize they haven't got their life together, people who realize they're lost, people who realize they're harassed and helpless, can be set free from those things and come under the rule and reign of the living God who loves them and sees them. This is the same Jesus who, when he died on the third day, he rose from the dead, which is the the definite proof that he gives eternal life to all who will believe. It's this costly grace, this grace that was earned by Jesus is what is freely offered to you and me. And this is why the Pharisees and the self-righteous religious people don't get it. And why the moral people who think they're already good enough for God don't get it. Because they don't realize that their sin is also bad enough that Jesus had to die for them. And so they realize, they don't realize that they're sinners. And so they're left out of the grace of God. The Bible tells us that it's only by believing in Jesus and his costly grace poured out from his own body given for sinners that we can receive his grace ourselves. Now there's a natural objection that comes at this point and it goes like this. Well, if God is going to freely accept you on the basis of what Jesus has done, then you could just do whatever you want, couldn't you? You know, you could put up your hand and say, well, yes, I want to become a Christian. That's, that's a deal that's too good to be true, and isn't it? I mean, it's good, right? Jesus does all the work for us. He goes to the cross in my place. He dies for my sin. He's the one that rises from the dead. I just need to believe in him. Yeah, I can give away everything else and trust in him because I found something better than gold. I've had my eureka moment. But doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean that I could just do whatever I want for the rest of my life? I could just keep on sinning because I've, I've, I've received it. But that way of thinking actually misses what it means to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, it is no mere decision. It is no mere decision just to follow Jesus, but it is leaving behind the old way of life. What was Matthew doing when he rose and followed Jesus, when he was obedient to the command of Jesus? He was saying, not only will I leave my old life behind of being a tax collector, I will leave my old way of life behind by being someone who is caught up in a dog-eat-dog world where there is no grace. Matthew is saying, 
by responding to Jesus that I will live a life marked by and defined by grace. Marked by and defined by grace. Chuck Swindoll comments on that we have this wrong attitude in us where we think that God is not a God of grace after we're saved, but He's constantly giving us grades. This is how he puts it. Glaringly, he that is God says, Well done, Johnson. That gets a C-. And Dorothy, you ought to be ashamed. And Smith, not bad. Could have been better, though. What heretical imaginations we have. Why do we think like that? Who is responsible for such horror images of the Almighty? Where do we pick up the idea that God is mad or irritated? Knowing that all of God's wrath was poured out on His Son at His death on the cross, how can we think like that? As a matter of fact, the reason He brought Jesus back from the grave is that He was satisfied with His Son. And then Swindoll says this, Ponder this, if the Father is satisfied with His Son's full payment for sin, and we are in His Son by grace through faith, then He is what? Satisfied with you and me. What's Swindoll saying here? That if we're saved by grace, we live by grace too. It's not just changing your profession from being a tax collector to being something else. Your whole mindset, your whole way of life, your whole motivation is now new. When you believe, you're God's person now. You've joined the family. The way he sees, the God the Father sees Jesus is the same way he sees you because you have the identity of the Son. You have the position of the Son as part of the family. And that is the way we're supposed to live. There's a man called John Newton. And like Matthew, he knew that he was a sinner. He worked in the slave trade between England and, and Africa. On one trip to England on a slave ship, there was a mighty storm and he called upon the mercy of God to save him. And Jesus did save him. John Newton was a changed man. He turned away from the life of hard drinking, gambling and crudeness that marked him before. Like Matthew, John Newton turned away from his old life. Except for one thing, one glaring exception. He continued in the slave trade. Didn't know that, did you? What does this tell us? It tells us that Christians need the work of grace to be ongoing in our lives. We need to be continually changed by grace, freed from guilt and the power of sin, and apply that same attitude to the lives of others. And eventually this did happen for John Newton. He gave up slave trading and eventually became an abolitionist, working against the slave trade as an Anglican minister, partnering with someone called William Wilberforce. Later in life, John Newton would feel much shame about how he'd lived. He'd feel much guilt about having lived a life that even as a Christian, he continued in the slave trade. And so when he turned to the song that he wrote, Amazing Grace, he was reminded that he was saved by grace and he also lived. And you too, even if you're a Christian, you need it just as much today as the day you believed. You need it like John Newton needs it. 
You need it like Hagar needs it. You need it like Matthew needs it. You need it now. You need it tomorrow. You need it every day for the rest of your life. And that is the deep well of salvation that he offers you today. Draw from it. Draw from it. Because it is full. That well is full and ready for you to take from. Let me pray now as the band comes forward. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. Father, we give thanks to you. You are the God who sees us. In Christ Jesus, you see us in our mess, in a world that's messy, and yet you love us. We're fully known and fully loved by you. You call us to grace. You call us to believe. I pray that you would bless us today to draw from the deep well of grace that you've promised. And we pray this in Jesus' name.